Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is a podcast about decolonizing design. On today's episode, I am joined by the designer, educator, and researcher, Donna Abdella. Donna is currently a senior lecturer in communication design at Brunel University in London. She is also the founder of Calamat, a nonprofit magazine about Arab thought and culture, and is a founding member of the Decolonizing Design platform. Donna originally studied communications, but went on to get her MA in social design from the Maryland Institute College of Art and a PhD titled Design Otherwise towards a locally centric design education curricula in Jordan at Goldsmiths University in London. And obviously, I was really interested in talking to her about all of this. I was really curious about her background and this evolution of her career. And I was especially excited to talk to her about both this idea of locally centered design education and what that means and what it means to decolonize design and how we can actually go about doing that. This was such a fascinating conversation on everything from teaching philosophies to breaking down the barriers between design disciplines to the role of the designer as citizen. I'm so excited to uh, share this one with you. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links, and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism and uh, everything that we talk about on the show. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the podcast, I hope you consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening, and enjoy this conversation with me and Donna Abdullah. start by talking about your background and just the, the the general trajectory of your career because I find it interesting and simultaneously very logical and also uh, kind of uh, not logical illogical a little bit of, of the directions that you've you've taken and so I'd, I'd like to kind of talk about um, how your work has evolved so you originally studied uh, communications in undergrad right? Yeah. You're 18, 19. What were you interested in at the time? Why, why communications? What, what, where did you see yourself going then? This is, this is a very interesting question, I think, because when you're 18, 19, well, I was 18. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And also because I was limited by the choices that my, um, uh, you know, my Arab parents wanted me to pursue mm. for business or engineering, uh, possibly medicine or law, you know, after you get a degree. So maybe something sciencey, which didn't fit me at all. I went to an, um, an art high school. And so that visual mm. arts was always part of what I did. I was always drawing. I was always doing, uh, you know, things that you expect designers to do. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, uh, my sister had studied fashion design. So the idea of design mm. was around in terms of like it was very present in my upbringing uh, right. i went enrolled into business and did not like it because it was <laughs> money and maintaining the status quo right but, uh, those were not things i enjoyed and so i started actually i guess when you're applying to university you there's no real prep in high school for you to mm-hmm. go into university in terms of like what are the options available to you and perhaps for some places that's a bit different but for me I definitely don't remember having those conversations with any of my teachers or you know you just went somewhere very few kids really knew what they were good at and just kind of went and pursued that and so when I was doing um business and doing very badly in business (laughs) I (laughs) I uh I started looking at what kind of the, the prospectus, you know, this is where, where your first engagement with graphic design is. A graphic designer has put together this prospectus and told you, here are the courses available in this university, and you start reading them. And mm-hmm. I said, okay, well, I, I like this. This is really interesting, you know, because communications is media studies. It's got all the theory bits. It's got the practical bits. So you work on video, you work on radio, uh, you're doing the great thing called Adobe Flash at the time. Um, And, uh, you know, so it was like, oh, cool, I can do all of these things. And I want to do all of these things. And so that's why I switched over um, without having to lose the credits, because I was able to get a minor, still very terrible at business, just in case anybody wants to. (laughs) Um, 
Yeah, so that's basically how I got to study communications. And it was a great degree to have because it really was a, the, the theoretical bit was there. It was rigorous. I got to know not only um, how to write, uh, but also how to make things. So uh, dealing with moving image, um, learned flash, again, completely obsolete the moment you graduate. Yes. Um, and then started delving into design by the different kind of internships and people that I was working with. So that's how I realized, oh, this is the area I want to go into. You mentioned that studying communications, you were able to get the the kind of practical side, but also the theoretical side, and that that was something that you were really interested in. And so what was it about the theory side that interested you? And and then what was it about the the kind of practical side that interested you at that time? Was graphic design the thing that you wanted to do? Were you more interested in the ideas around these things? Where did, what was it that excited you, you know, once you kind of got into that program? I mean, if I can, this was, how old did I, this was like 2005. So this was quite a while ago. Um, I think in terms of the theory, what excited me about it was just reading what different types of people were saying mm-hmm. about subjects. Um, and engaging with those and trying to formulate my own opinion, which as an undergrad, you're still sort of, you know, at a, at a, yeah, not the yeah. Stage, you know, with it, but, but it was still there. It was like, okay, you're reading this, trying to understand this text and trying to deconstruct this language, some of the academic jargon. Um, mm-hmm. But it was also how these ideas can be put into like actionable, practical ways. Uh, in terms of, did, was I interested in graphic design specifically? No, not necessarily. I think I was interested around design in general, and I still mm. am very, I mean, I love graphic design, but I'm interested always in design in general because a big yeah. part of the work that I do is about abolishing this disciplinary uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. They're quite limiting. Um, and so, yeah, it was working with... Um, a modeling agency we were producing events and then those events had to have publications they had to have brand they had to have a brand they had to have a name and all of these things interested me because mm-hmm. i felt how they affected people how people reacted to them and so that was my what i wanted to do was i wanted to work on big ad campaigns because i thought some ad campaigns were so incredibly funny and just clever and mm. they mixed in the art direction with the copy i was much more into writing than than being in on art director because I guess with communications you're sort of a better writer than you are a practitioner at that point mm-hmm. um, even though you know I, I knew how to do a lot of the other things because of being in high school and just uh, engaging in visual arts and stuff like that and photography and moving image was basically things that we did a lot on the course um, right. so these things were all extremely interesting to me um, and so I thought I wanted to work in advertising because you can it was just, you can work on anything and you work with such different clients. And that's why I wanted to pursue advertising, which after going into advertising, I realized is definitely not for me, but I did learn a lot from it. And I am very thankful for those very few short years I spent there. So, so you finish, you finish your undergrad and you, you go into advertising and you were, you were in advertising for a couple of years. And then was it after that, that you then went to MICA to study social design? Yeah, so basically what happened was uh, I graduated 2008 when Lehman Brothers fell. So mm-hmm. you know, any job in marketing and advertising was basically yeah. found one. Wow, right? Because yeah. it, was, it was quite the struggle. And like you took whatever you could get. I think my salary was something appalling. Uh, what I did was when working in advertising, I sort of felt unfulfilled in terms of the activist part of my life. That was something I grew up with. I am Palestinian, and so it's a big part of my upbringing. It's a big part of who I am, um, and this idea of challenging the status quo. And so I decided to just uh, quit my job at DDB, which is a very large advertising agency, um, and went to Palestine for about a month and then traveled around. And that's when I started engaging with people who had these incredibly great stories to tell but didn't have the language or the uh, platform to tell them. In, in the English language in particular, because if you think of Palestine and the Arab world, a large, a, a, most of the stories are told by uh, uh, foreigners, foreign journalists, foreigners living there um, in the English language. 
And so I wanted to think, I want to think about a platform. What does that mean? Um, what does it do? And so then I started working on uh, my magazine, which is called Kelimat, which means words. And that was in summer of 2010. Um, then I had come back, started working on it, got a job at some digital agency for a little bit while working on this after work. And uh, I launched it and then I realized, okay, wait, wait, wait. I'm, I want to pursue more schooling because I, I just yeah. want to engage with research again um, and have the space to make something, you know, like where I didn't have to worry about work and have the resources just to kind of make something. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for different courses. Again, I was still thinking within the media studies scope, but I was also looking at graphic design. I was also looking at different programs based on their description in terms of like, what, what kind of projects am I going to be working on? Because I didn't just want to work on like a, I didn't want a studio practice type of program. That wasn't mm. my interest. Um, looking at the faculty, just just kind of researching everything. And then I was on Core 77, you know that website? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And this advert for MICA MA Social Design first class pops up. I was like, hmm, this looks interesting. Nice. Click, it tells you advertising works. Uh, so I click on it and just start reading it. And I thought, wow, this is actually exactly what I want to do. Mm. Um, and then I, I think I either applied or I emailed Mike, Mike Weikert and that was, that was it. No, actually that wasn't it. That I got into the new school as well in the, in the media. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I was sort of toying between, do I go to the new school? Do I go to Micah? And I remember going down to Baltimore and uh, I'm sorry, not the loveliest city, but you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's sort of a bit like, oh my God, what is this place? Right. Yep. And, I know and exactly what you mean. The extravagant tuition that America has, of course. And, <laughs> and just arriving mm -hmm. in Baltimore, and I remember Ryan Clifford and Mike Weikert taking me out to this Afghani restaurant and saying, we want you to, to be on this course. And I thought, okay, this is great. I went to the new school. They were nice enough, but it was just completely, it was a bit disconnected. Yeah. I really love that community aspect of Micah. It was small. It was like, it was just great. And so I thought, okay, you're taking a risk by going into a program that it's in its first year. So yeah, I decided to go to MICA and uh, I guess it led me to where I am today when I think about it. I know exactly what you mean when you talk about kind of why you picked MICA. That was the same experience for me when I went to MICA. There was that, that kind of community aspect. I agree with you about Baltimore. <laughs> and I thought, you know, this is a great city for me to study in. Yeah. Uh, uh, and that's it. And I know exactly what Afghani restaurant you're talking about. Uh, I have been there many times. <laughs> um, and I, I, I think there's something really interesting about choosing not just MICA over the new school, but choosing social design over the kind of media studies. And I don't know much about the new school's media studies program. I had Shannon Mattern on the podcast. Um, who's someone who's a writer that I just love and she teaches in that program. Yeah. Um, but there's something to me about social design, going back to the earlier discussion about the kind of theory versus the practice where social design to me seems much more um, like you can do things with it, especially talking about that activism interest and background that you had where yeah. the, other, where media seems much more theoretical. Was that your experience also? Um, I think that what attracted me about the, the New School Parsons program was the fact that, you know, your you could create a, a it was your thesis could be a project, so you could mm. create a film. And I I was looking at making a film more than anything, a film, a documentary, kind of in that domain. Oh, interesting. That was kind of the direction that I wanted to go into, um, and it's tying that into publishing somehow because I had the, right. But I, I don't think, I think it really depends on the school you go to in terms of what you learn in a media studies or communications program. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was, what was your experience at MICA like? And in that social design program that was the first class, did that, I mean, you, you said this has kind of set you up for all the work you've done since. Did that kind of give you the thing you were looking for or the thing that maybe you thought you were looking for? Or how, how did... You got you, you you get into Baltimore. What happens? Oh God! Uh, 
I get into Baltimore and we were, I think, at, so remember this MA social design program was in its first year at that right. point. So you know, now working in academia, I can really understand the first year of anything, how difficult it is. And, uh, uh, what are we trying to do? Something completely different within an art and design institution that teaches art and design in a very traditional way. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you have people who come in, what are their expectations? But you have people who are coming in who are not from design, who are from, you know, anthropology, who are from, mm. who don't, who've never been through the design process, you know? Right. Uh, and it, so they, I guess what, my, of course, any expectation that you have is not going to be exactly what happens when you get there. I think for me, um, Baltimore was difficult because we were at Micah Place, which was uh, near near Johns Hopkins Hospital. And that right. area at that point, basically almost abandoned. Well, it wasn't abandoned. They had raised through it and, and kicked the community out. Right. And so you, you felt like you... Well, we didn't belong in that community. You know, we were really outsiders. We weren't connected yeah. to the community in any way. We were behind this fortress of a, of a structure. Uh, and But don't get me wrong. We had a blast at Micah Place. I mean, the amount of parties that we did there. <laughs> the graduate community at Micah was just, I mean, I made some amazing friends that I'm still in touch with. Um, that we lived there. We had our studios there. We had our classes there. It was a bit disconnected from the main Mica campus. And I think mm. that most people had no idea what Mike was trying to do with the program. They, they didn't really know he had the center and they kind of understood that, but I don't think they really knew what the MA social design was trying to do. And I think now many years later, they really have a grasp on what they're doing and they're really connected to the community and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. such a pleasure because he's so passionate and he's, He's just extremely, he's a happy guy. He's just, he's so excited about design and he's just an absolute delight to be around. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, that was, it, I guess what I did was it, it wasn't the experience I wanted, but I took what I needed from it and I got the support in order to, I mean, what I was trying to research at that point, I realized was much bigger than a one year, even less than that MA at MICA. It was mm. a, a larger project. And then is that not to not to try to like connect things too linearly, but then is that how the PhD started? Was that kind of continuation of research that you started at MICA? Yeah, it was. It, it definitely evolved into something in a different, much more structured and, and not structured, but much more kind of focused on one specific area rather than trying to do everything. Which is uh, what you realize you can't do everything. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so, yeah. So, so wait, so how long after MICA did you then start the PhD? Uh, I graduated from MICA in May and I started my PhD in September. Okay. So, so same went, year yeah. you went right into it. Yeah. And, so I think it was more something I had brought up to um, Mike and um, at the time, I think he was Dean Gunalan. Nadarajan Guna, he was the dean, I think, of mm-hmm. the, the art and design department, and they were both extremely supportive and thought that this was actually a very good direction for me to go into. And I applied to the UK because this was one of the only places you could do a practice-based PhD, right. um, whereas the US and Canada were very much about the MFA as sort of a terminal degree, but it was right. much, an MFA is much more about your studio practice versus what the UK was offering and what the PhD would be. Right. And uh, so, yeah, it was quite quickly after I moved out of Baltimore, went to New York for a couple of months, went back to Canada, and then moved with three bags to London. I, I love it. So, yeah. so, and your PhD was around design education, right? So where did, where did the interest in education and teaching come in? It was always part of the publishing practice in terms of what Kelimat was, was its initial mission was to be a visual communication tool that empowers and educates people. Mm. And so I was, while at MICA, looking into, um, you know, what is the educational system within the Arab region in teaching design? And right. how is that tied to the, to the local context? But I was also interested in ideas in terms of um, the different types of aesthetics that were being promoted through this, uh, through you know, standards set by so-called universal design. And it really moved into looking at design education in Jordan specifically. So one specific context. Um, 
so yeah, it was always part of it. Education was always something I was very interested in. Pedagogy is always something I was very interested in um, because I do think that design is largely an educational tool. Yeah, I, I have so many questions around <laughs> around that we could spend the rest of this conversation talking about education. That's primarily where my practice has moved to, and it's what I think about all the time. And, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you, because what I had read of your PhD that you had online about these ideas around kind of locally centric education and kind of student led is something that I've been thinking about a lot in that when when I studied design, um, it was a very Western European model. Design history was kind of rooted in that that kind of modernist principles. And as a teacher now, I'm trying to not do that, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm trying to teach uh, in, by showing wider ranges of work by kind of dismantling a lot of. uh, this myth of design history that we're kind of taught. And I'm wondering, you know, you've now spent years thinking about this. Um, Can you talk about what you mean by locally centric design education and how this has then influenced your work as a teacher? Yeah. Uh, I think for me, what I noticed about a lot of the design schools in the Arab world is that they were basically copy pasting structures from, you know, North American and European Mm -hmm. programs. Uh, and this is because of a different history of design that um, evolved in that region. I mean, remember, you, you don't really have something called industrial design. It, there is no real industry for producing that. Um, mm. And unfortunately, the crafts practices that they've had in Western design crafts is seen as just crafts. It's not seen as design, right? Oh, so right. there was that issue. Uh, so a lot of the programs were, you'd see a lot of interior design programs, a lot of graphic design programs, very few fashion and very few product or industrial design programs a lot of architecture but i wasn't looking at architecture because it follows very different standards and it's much more um it's what you call a sort of major profession so there's regulations on them whereas design has very diverse curricula and is is not necessarily accredited by a certain board and so on um and nor should it be you know right so um what I meant by locally centric designs, what I noticed was a lot of the content and a lot of the ways of teaching was disconnected from the student reality. At the same time, it wasn't because it, what I argue is that it actually emulates the structure of the state, mm. which is very much, this is the authority. I am the teacher and you are the student and you listen and you do not talk back to me. You do not have an opinion, etc. Right. Uh, but also in terms of what they were learning, whether it was history, it was also the language that they were learning in. Um, it was also what they were producing were just completely disconnected from uh, the world around them. Um, and and we could say that about many other design programs as well. I think that a lot of students come in and they're, you know, we, we teach them in a very, we teach them like yeah. it's the Bible, right? Do yeah. this, do this, do that. Is it is it connected to my my local area, not likely. Um, so that was what I was looking to explore. And I wanted to explore that with the people who had, uh, so students, designers and uh, design educators, because they're the ones who are in it, right? It wasn't, mm-hmm. you don't want to, curriculum is done by a specialist who has no idea what design is. And they just approve for quality and they think you're just another department. They don't realize that you have different teaching needs. You have different timetabling needs. You have you know, mm-hmm. um, so that was largely what I was exploring. I'm sorry, I don't know if I've deviated from your question, but in terms of locally centric, it was how is it tied to my milieu and how do I bring in, you know, the places, the environments that shape me right. into this teaching, uh, into my design education experience. And so when you say student led, it really is about making them part of of that to make a classroom like a community as, as bell hooks has stated. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's, that's kind of more or less a, a summary of the mammoth research. Yeah. I love that. I, I, I'm sorry if this is just me asking for teaching advice. <laughs> no, <laughs> um, th- this resonates with me so much. This is like exactly how I'm trying to operate in the classroom and I am on board with everything 
that you're saying. Um, and this has come up on the podcast before, and I've asked a bunch of educators <laughs> this because this is clearly something I'm wrestling with is um, how, what, how does that change your position as, as a teacher? And when, when you then, you know, are in the classroom as, as a critic, as a, a I, this is not the right word, but I can't think of a better word, evaluator. Um, how do you engage with the students and the students' work when they're all coming from different backgrounds and bringing different things? You can't, you can't go back to the Bauhaus model of like, yes, this is good, no, this is bad, et cetera. Yeah. You know what I mean? No, absolutely. And I think that's, uh, you know, I think that a big part of the research was, you know, when you say locally centric, oh, are you developing a model just for Jordan? No, no, no. Every university is based in a different space. Right. And they need that so you need to teach it differently based on that space and test it out and see what works for you on the in the location that you're in um and i think that the when you think of student-led education it's also a learning experience for you as an educator because how do you handle different ways of learning in the classroom as well mm-hmm. right because that's another thing it's not only what they're bringing it's it's how they learn you know if i just kind of blanket some one way of teaching a student something they're not going to engage with the content. They're going to be completely disconnected. Now, granted, we have huge student numbers and that's more and more difficult. Um, but that's the beauty of the studio. Um, right. And I think that, you know, we've, the Bauhaus has done some wonderful things. It has given us these great blueprints, let's say. But I think there's a, yeah, there's just, I, I don't know how to really answer this question because it's so personal based on how you engage with your own classroom. Yeah. And what, at that specific moment and that's the great part about being an educator is that you never have the same day twice right i guess my question is and maybe this is a false binary now kind of hearing you talk about this but something that i think about a lot as a white male professor in new york city who's teaching predominantly international students Mm -hmm. um who are expecting a grade how and if I say, you know, this is student-led, you know, I, I, want, I want you all to bring your experiences into the classroom. Um, I, don't, I don't know how to, how to phrase it. You know, when I think about giving grades or when I think about evaluating, we're in a critique setting talking about it. Um, I, I, how do you say something is right or wrong or good or bad? Do, can you even do that anymore? You know what I'm, you know, you know what I'm asking? I mean, I try to frame it in terms of, of a conversation. Again, there's, mm-hmm. we're not going to abolish everything right away, right? And, and may, there's some great things about how design has been practiced. And, you know, there's, you know, I love the grid. And I <laughs> yeah. learn the grid and learn how to use it. I, I think that's a big shame. When people say, I want to break it now. No, no, you need to understand it. Understand these tools uh, first. Yeah. And then show me how you can evolve from it. Um, right, right, right. So I, I don't want to frame it in right or wrong because, and that's a very sort of other disciplines do that where it's like, oh, there's either a right or wrong answer. And with design, you don't have that. Right. There's how students is able to articulate the reasons behind their decisions. Right, right, exactly. So express why they chose uh, this color, why they chose this subject, why they chose to work with this particular group you know, and uh, to justify it. So, you know, give me the reasons. How is this challenging you? Mm. And I think that's more important to me that students are able to articulate these ideas without being defensive, which is very difficult. Right, right. And that's, yeah, that's okay, right, check mark. I may not like the work aesthetically, you know, it's, it's subjective, but I wouldn't mark it down if that student gave the reasoning that even kind of goes against what I believe in. I don't, you know, it's... Yeah, 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 yeah. That makes sense. How is the how has this changed that experience? Whether you know working on the PhD and then also as being a, a teacher, how has this changed your own design work or your own approach to being a designer? Uh, I don't think I've made a piece of work in a long okay. time. <laughs> okay, okay. Because I'm so the academic world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the last thing I designed was. The PhD, which actually had to be in very strict University of London confines. Oh, okay. 
thinking about all the briefs I give them and, and because that's kind of the work that you do now you know, right. when you're yeah. academic, your, your main job is being a full-time academic um, and the you know the things that I make is these briefs that I give them right, right. the activities that we do in the classroom and it has made me reflect a lot on what I put and how what language I use in it what readings I give them um, what I show them in terms of examples I definitely think it has definitely changed how I do that and how I run the class, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, we're having this conversation at a, at a really interesting time, actually, because I'm doing the same thing. I'm right in the middle of rewriting all of the syllabi and, and projects for my classes for the fall and uh, have been thinking about all of these things you're talking about and how to kind of talk about them in class and write about them and, and imagining the critique settings, which is kind of why I'm asking you these questions. Let me ask the, the previous question in a different way, and, and perhaps this can lead into uh, decolonizing design a little bit. I'm curious how these ideas that we're talking about maybe don't necessarily change how you think about your own work, but how you think about design in general. And you mentioned earlier about you see kind of part of your work as dismantling these definitions between them. Can you talk more about that? Yeah. Um, I think right, uh, ever since, I think since August, I've been at uh, Brunel University and Brunel is a um, product and industrial design program. Mm. So I teach communication design, graphic design to product and industrial design students. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So it's a very different, uh, we're also in a college of engineering. And so, you know, where you are placed in a university and you're also within a larger university that sees you as just another department, it's a very different experience than being where I usually am comfortable is the art and design right, right. You know, design space. Um, so I, I see pros and cons to both. And, uh, but it's taught me, I think in terms of one, the, the design process is similar whichever discipline you're in mm -hmm. it's it, it's almost i don't want to say steps but you literally do the same thing mm -hmm. so <laughs> you think the same way you're taught to think the same way um it's a different engagement with uh, i think for me has been really interesting and in, in, in my knowledge of materials has just gone through the roof mm. you know, dealing with plastics and metals and all these things and being and, and having these great facilities where the students are making this um, you know, and, and their understanding of it has been quite a nice learning experience for me. And I think it's, and then me having, being able to teach them about paper and what they can do with paper. Right. I think students are always amazed at how you use 700 gram paper, you can make a lamp. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like what? Yeah. This yeah, is yeah, yeah. paper, such a great material. Um, and so that's been really interesting. Uh, the way of thinking where I see, okay, there's actually, we, we have a similar, we're all designers. We all think in a similar way. Um, but why do we have these barriers between us where we don't actually know anything about each other, although there's so much room for us to work together right. and complement each other's work? Um, for students in products and industrial design, I think there's a reputation for graphic design that it's, it's uh, and it's just so bad to say, that it's, it's just like a fluffy right. kind of thing, which is really interesting because when you look at the history of graphic design, it's a very male practice, yeah. you know? yeah. Um, sort of like architecture and you come into the space where already there's a sort of rift between engineers and designers hmm. and you have this rift between okay graphic and product design industrial design uh, and then they realize that actually after the class saying I never realized that graphic design is actually affects the entire social world right. <laughs> Part right. of it, you know right. and and it has, and, and again, this is the thing is that graphic designers don't realize how much they have to do with other design disciplines. You're on clothes, you're on products, you're on services, you're on all these. So why do we have these barriers? That's what is so interesting to me, because I think that we would be much more, uh, perhaps I would say we'd be much more sensitive citizens mm. if we understood every aspect of design. And then 
perhaps think of specialization at a later stage or even none at all. I don't know. That's something I'm kind of toying with at the moment. Can uh, um, could you talk yeah. could you talk more about that about being more sensitive citizens and something I, you mentioned earlier in the conversation that I wanted to come back to uh is um you didn't want to maintain the status quo and you thought that design in some way could do that. And I think that that's connected to this idea of being sensitive citizens. Can you talk more about what you mean by that and how you think design can be a part of that? Uh, well, I think as designers, we create what we do. We make the world God did not make, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. That's what we, what the design is. Um, and whether we like it or not, whatever we make, even if we think is mundane, affects people's life, you know, bad signage, uh, uh, bad uh, dentistry tool, uh, right. you know, uh, frustrating interfaces, all of these things affect people, no matter how small they are, right? Because they engage with what we make. In terms of being a sensitive citizen, I think what we have is with design education, it makes you think very differently from others mm -hmm. um, because you are basically trained to f like observe and find the little details that no one notices. Right. Right. Yeah. And that makes you more sensitive and more observant. And when you're detail oriented, it's like, it makes you more thoughtful. I guess to quote uh, one quote I really love by Charles Eames is the, the, the designer must be the perfect dinner host. They must anticipate all of their guests' needs. <laughs> right. And that's really why I love design so much and why I think that we have such a more power than we think we do because yeah. we can make, we can make someone's life extremely enjoyable. I mean, think about how when someone engages with a product and how much they love it and they just want to talk about it. And they're sort of like, actually this has, this has considered me. Yes, there is a, a human behind this, but then also, you know, we consider, the non-humans, like when you when you observe, you're sitting down and you see how the squirrel jumps over the, the rubbish bin because that was a man-made thing and how they sort of right. start to engage with objects that are now in their space. You know, maybe maybe the designer can think of ways they consider how the squirrel would use it. I know this is sounding like a very silly example. No, I know exactly what you mean. Right? You become more sensitive to humans and non-humans. Um so, yeah, but also in terms of the materials that you use uh, when, when you sort of add this, it's, I don't know, there's just so many things that for me, the possibilities are endless. This, this attention to detail, this way of thinking of how I'm going to make it a bit more bearable for someone or not even bearable, but like, I don't know what the word is that I'm looking for. I think that there's a lot of, a lot of design, unfortunately, is, is too quick to go out right. and is very bad. And that's why you have another, another better rendition of something. Actually, it's just an extra feature. Right. And I try to get my students to not think of features, of not thinking of just product-centric things, um, but of actually well, really break down this object what is the problem with it? Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe it's not even the, maybe it's not even just the product itself. It can be, I don't know, um, the issue can be a service. It can be a certain some other observation that you've made that has nothing to do with the product. You know, just sort of these are the things that make design so interesting, right? You know, when thinking in a very sort of specific. I'm a graphic designer. I must create a printed output or a digital interface. I am a product designer. I must create a product. Um, and that product must be a commercial product, right? Right. I am a designer. I must create a garment that is put on the runway. That is also a, uh, that has possibility for mass, uh, mass market. Uh, I'm an interior designer. I am, a, I work on this specific aspect of, you know, interiors of, of apartments um, and only this area here, I only work on commercial, uh, commercial buildings or on right. private apartments and things like that. So it's very, very rigid. Yeah. And I think that, that rigidity, I, I, I think, I think you're exactly right. And I think the, the world just doesn't really even work like that anymore. And, you know, I think about, you know, that, that we can wear watches that have computers in them, that is fashion and product design. And there's typography on that, which is graphic design. It's, it's, it's all of these things. 
Um, yeah. And if, if we're too siloed like that, we're not going to get to something better. It is just going to be the, the, the quick, fast, um, let's add a new feature because we can solutions. Yeah. I want to connect this maybe to decolonizing design. Uh, and this is a site that you co-founded and has been kind of a, I guess you could kind of call it a movement. There's there's a lot of discussion around decolonizing design, what it means to decolonize design. Can you talk about, um, just for people that, that aren't familiar with it, what both what decolonizing design the site is and what it means to decolonize design? Ooh, I think that the second bit of the question is probably not going to be answerable okay. in um, a short period of time. Okay. But I guess with, with the website um, and 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 perhaps I'm just going to be kind of regurgitating our own manifesto. <laughs> That's fine. What we wrote when we we created it um, was we really thought that there was no critical reflection on what the politics of design practice are mm-hmm. uh, and the stuff that that designers create, right? I think if you think of design, we always think it's very neutral. We don't think of what we do as political. Um, and so we're actually un- we're actually making ourselves look completely meaningless where we're just innocent people who make pretty things. And then we argue right. against that. But we're the ones that are actually saying that, oh, no, no, we don't do anything political. Right. right. So it's very um, But we also thought not only just in, in academic discourse, but professional discourse, there really wasn't anything uh, critical um, and, you know, and it wasn't really addressing these longstanding systemic issues of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what, what types of knowledge that uh, what is considered good design, that was something that we were constantly right. trying to discuss amongst ourselves. What was this idea of universal design? <laughs> what is universal design? Um, what is the role of, you know, crafts practices in other places in the world? Why is it that we're constantly reading the same figures in design history? Um, And even, I mean, for me, not, I wouldn't, for me personally, it was this idea of, of looking at the discourse around global design history and global design history really meant anyone who writes in the English language about another place on earth. (laughs) You know, these were the the questions that we were kind of grappling with. Um, and so we decided that there were people that were writing about this, you know, uh, it, it was not mainstream design discourse, which is constantly dominated by the very Anglo-centric, Eurocentric ways of seeing, mm-hmm. knowing in the world. Um, and there was just no attention to, uh, alternative discourses. And even with the global design history uh, discussion, it was any educator that was likely, or sorry, any academic that was either living outside their home country and could write in English that was included. You weren't mm. really including other languages. Um, and so we were like, well, why is there no space? And when we meant space, we're talking about conferences. We're talking about uh, publications, all of these things. And so we thought, why don't we create the space and invite people to write about alternative discourses? Um, so to to let people think of, to invite people to another way of thinking about the world, to think otherwise, to kind of, uh, of other ways of seeing the world. Right, right. right. Ways of uh, understanding the world and understanding the implications of design um, that have brought to bear on sort of non, non, non-Western ways of thinking and being, you know, and then how design is implicated in issues of class, race, uh, gender, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we wanted to highlight and put these ideas at the forefront. Um, yeah, I think that's kind of more or less why we uh, why we think there's a big need for this platform. And, and, and interestingly, the moment we launched it, we realized how much people were so thankful for it. Yeah, in terms of this space, and they were just tired of the same old design discourse. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I, th- I think it comes back to something you said very early on, and, and I've brought up a couple of times throughout is this, you know, you kind of having this desire to not maintain the status quo. And I think a lot of design discourse, and, and I think part of why I started this podcast also is I felt like the design discourse that was happening on sites like, like Fast Company, 
was mm. just, you know, the stuff that designers were reading was just maintaining the status quo. It wasn't pushing yeah. any, anything forward. It wasn't asking any tough questions. We were seeing the same agencies, the same studios, the same designers again and again. The design discourse has kind of devolved, not, not all of it, but a lot of it had devolved into PR machines. Uh, yeah. How, how does, how does um, decolonizing that look to you and you started answering that by kind of looking more globally not as in global design but kind of you know hearing from a range of voices what else can we do to help shape the discourse or or to decolonize design that's not being done now or that we need more of i mean i think that there's uh the, the main thing that we always iterate is that our goal is really is not additive change it's not hey let's sprinkle on a few other women right, or right. people of color into the curriculum no 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 it's fundamentally rethink rethinking the way that you teach what you teach mm-hmm. uh how you teach um and you know challenging your own convictions really i mean when you think about how you understand his the history of the world um, and how you understand the history of design. Everybody always starts with um, in the Industrial Revolution. Right. So, you know, wait, there, there are other histories. There are, but there's also, it, it's, I guess to summarize it, it really is radical systemic, uh, systemic change. Um, mm-hmm. It's not just, I think that a lot of, you know, you have this embrace of, decolonizing design of diversity and inclusivity, but inclusivity and diversity, it just feels like, okay, well, we're going to let you into the convo. But we're not right, right. And that's what we, that's what we don't want, right? We want something to, when you think of challenging the status quo, you think of really fundamentally restructuring things without kind of, you know, we're not saying abolish everything that came before. No, 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 no. There are other ways of thinking and knowing in the world. You know, there's people who talk about a world sense and de- decolonial theories who talk about a world sense. Mm-hmm. So people who see the world not through a worldview, but world sense. So uh, other senses, for example. Right. Um, you've given so much attention to the viewpoint, right, in, in, um, in history. And we've kind of disregarded other ways of, uh, of, of experiencing the world. The other thing is in, in terms of an example is sustainability theory. Mm-hmm. When we think about sustainability, we always think, oh, we need to be sustainable. This is all come, this is like theory generated from the West. But a lot of it is just kind of stealing and co-opting ideas from indigenous communities. Mm-hmm. So it's time to really think about how these people also contribute to knowledge, right? right? Because they're often seen as, and uh, this was something I tried to do with my thesis, is that I was interested in theorists who were, whether they were engaging with Marxist theory, but they were engaged, they were living in the Arab world, they were writing about the Arab world. I wasn't interested in using the same old European theorists to talk about the region that I was embedded in, right? right. Um, and why do we say that you know, only only um, only certain people write theory, everybody else, it's just, uh, it's just biased testimonial mm. or whatnot. Mm. That's kind of what across and that's what we we don't want that's what it means to decolonize i won't say design because i think it's, it's larger than that but um it is a it's moving away from this idea that we live in a universal world right. and for a plural world a world where many worlds fit right basically um but also when you think of the idea of of the term decolonizing every every space has such a different history. So what that means is, is based again on the context that you're in. If you're speaking of decolonizing design in the UK, it's very different from speaking of decolonizing design in uh, Canada mm-hmm. or in, um, in uh, the Arab world, for example. Right. Yeah. So for the people in the Arab world, decolonizing design could mean removing English as the first language of them, Right, being taught design in English, and but not removing it completely, but putting Arabic at the forefront and still learning English and engaging with English. Yeah, 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 yeah. But not forcing English to be the predominant language, and them kind of not being able to articulate their ideas in their own mother tongue. Right. So those, you know, again, I'm not, you know, every, it's so different. The context is so important, and I think that that's what we generally, as designers, forget. Right. Um, we forget about our role in 
I think it's because we're just, I guess it's, it's not necessarily, when you think of fast company and you think of these uh, different, uh, different sort of sources that, that designers go to, um, it's so, sh- it's so shallow. I mean, there's some random good stuff on there here and there, but it's, it's just, it doesn't really question design as just the service provider, even talk about designers and leadership positions what has that changed nothing it's just actually made machines more clever where you have what what is it uh, one stop one one shop click on amazon <laughs> you have yeah. uh, red receipts this is what we're good at as designers right we create these incredibly intrusive things so imagine we put that power into something else right i love that i and what i like about it is Admittedly, for me, when I think about decolonizing design, I, I, I even find myself thinking about it in a narrow context of kind of how we talk about design history. Um, and that we need mm. to, when I, when I say decolonizing design, I kind of subconsciously limit it to decolonizing design history. And what I love about what you just said is that it's not just about showing a wider range of history or kind of dismantling a little bit of what we think of as that design history, but it's actually about rethinking it's that system uh, systemic change that you're talking about about how how we actually talk about our work and then also the work that we engage in and what we see as our role of as designers mm-hmm. and i think that uh is so interesting I, I think that's really where where these ideas really start really could start to make a difference um or at least kind of start to change some things yeah um i have two more questions um and these are two questions that I used to end all of these conversations. And, and this first one might be connected to what we were just talking about. What are the subjects or topics that you're thinking about right now? What's kind of next for you research-wise? Where do you see um, your research and your time going, uh, going forward? Um, well, time is a myth. <laughs> <laughs> I have no time, um, Right, of course. None of us do. I think the first year in any job, you're always just committed to getting the the modules that you're teaching off the ground, making sure that they're running properly and all that. Yeah. So I sort of research has, has taken a backseat, but I've been doing a lot of a lot of talks here and there. Um, some of which I think is going to evolve in, in larger, say, book chapters or journal articles. Mm. Um, I'm very interested in reliving the trauma of my PhD and perhaps transforming that into a book okay. uh, nice. because I think it's important for me that this piece of work is also translated into Arabic and mm. looked at in terms of next steps where, you know, what do the participants take out of it? What do they do with it? Do they see it as, I didn't write it as a, as a toolkit. That was something I wanted to move away right. from, but there are kind of specific key things that came out. Do they take that and, and try and interpret that in the classroom and what, the, what happens afterwards, right? Yeah. Evolving beyond. Um, and so that's something I'm interested in, in, in exploring uh, for decolonizing design, we're, we're heading to Porto mm. Design Biennial in nice. September. And so we're host, hosting a workshop there. And that's, you know, there's there is always something that we're working on and we're hoping that that will develop into something bigger for us as well uh, for future projects. Um, there's other things I'm interested in that really have nothing to do with my interest in design cultures in the Arab world mm. and in decolonizing design. Um, there's, you know, I, I'm... I'm super interested in understanding interfaces from a graphic designer's yeah. perspective. Like for example, as an academic, you're constantly using citation software and it's like, no one's ever employed a graphic designer. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'm also interested in, you know, in institutional software that you're forced to use as an academic, as a form of control and managerial. Oh, that's so and, interesting. You know, these are weird things I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, and then I'm, I'm also trying to push this, uh, the border thinking and design border thinking is a, is a, is a, is a decolonial theory concept, but that kind of abolishing of disciplinary disobedience mm. um, of disciplines within design, and then probably moving to other disciplines. So I'm, I'm, that's the area I'm really interested in now. And as always with design education um, and, you know, reflecting on how I'm teaching my own teaching practice um, and, yeah, and that's that's kind of more or less what I'm interested in these days. I'm still very, very much um, interested in, in publishing. And actually, this is me thinking about one of your earlier questions in terms of 
how has the work you've done with students changed mm, oh yeah, yeah the work that i think for me it wasn't necessarily just students but it was also being engaged in my research is that you know candy math was a publication that was a it was a magazine and it was a magazine created at a certain point in time the world was a very different place and that specific region the arab region was a very different place at that point and, and changed shifted in four or five years and so is a magazine the appropriate medium to to spread these ideas and that's something i've been toying with and then i and and to me no but i still want to stay within the realm of publishing but what does that mean and so these are the questions that i'm currently um exploring so that's great my last question is probably also a, a big question um who are the authors or the thinkers or what are the books that have really shaped how you think about all of this that we've been talking about? You know, someone listens to this, this episode and they, they like all of the things you're talking about. Where else would you point them um, as people to read or, or, or books to read or, or resources to spend time with? Ooh, that's a very... I guess there's a difference between the things that have inspired me and the oh. things that have, that I would get people to, I guess it really depends on what, you know, when people ask for recommendations, uh, what books would they read is, is, um, can we hear both? Can we hear your recommendations and your inspirations? Um, <laughs> I guess I'm going to look at the inspirations that would, could also okay. be as recommendations. Okay. Uh, one of my favorite books is of course, Teaching to Transgress by Bell Hook. And uh, her feminism is for everybody is another one because it's it's a very sort of why is it it's an important book because it's it's so accessible and you know this is something we try to do with decolonizing design we we want to make this discourse accessible we don't want it to just live within academia mm -hmm. and it's sort of that little book that you can give to someone and they're like okay I get what feminism is right. now it's not right. what I what I grew up thinking it's like anti male or and, and this yeah. discussion, you know, it, it really is so accessible and so important. And, um, and that one has really shaped for me how I present these ideas to the students in the classroom. Mm. Um, another one that also is Living a Feminist Life by Sara Ahmad is also a very important one. Um, in terms of looking at the Arab region, something that has encouraged me to look at different thinkers from the Arab region is Contemporary Arab Thought by Elizabeth Kassab. Mm. That book has, you know, transformed my, not transformed, but kind of expanded my, um, my uh, uh, reading list uh, for, you know, engaging with different Arab theorists. Um, anything written by, I wouldn't say anything written by, but a lot of this stuff written by, Ramon Grosfoguel, who's a who's a, a deep thinker, and 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 Arturo Escobar. Arturo has written Designs for the Pluriverse, mm. which is yeah, very yeah. much a to add design overall. So that one is, I highly recommend that one because it's 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 such a great piece of work. He's just gone through, he just breaks down all these different ideas and and uh, um, yeah, and it's it's always interesting to see someone who's not a designer talk about design in that yeah. way and see the importance of design. And it just, it's, um, uh, it, it's definitely a book I, I recommend, uh, for those that are interested in the world of teaching, um, academic diary by Les Back, who's a professor at Goldsmiths in sociology has really hmm. influenced my relationship to teaching my relationship to my students, my relationship to administrative staff. Oh, I don't know that one. Um, yeah, it's a really good one. It's published by Goldsmiths Press, and, and Les Back is just such a such an amazing um, educator, such an amazing amazing academic. Okay, I'm adding um, that to my list right now. Yeah, I definitely recommend that one. Um, I realize there isn't that many kind of design books that I would I would put in there because that just shows you is sort of not. <laughs> yeah, <really> no, <laughs> I actually kind of like that to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> I think design is is it's every single discipline influences design yeah, in some way. Yeah. So it, it's, um, yeah, I think for me, those, those are the, the main, the main books I would say at this, that I'm, I'm kind of trying to stick with what's been influencing me in the past couple of years. I think, I think that's great. 
I think that's a, a really good list. Actually, thank you so much for this conversation. This was so interesting to me. I feel like I learned a lot and you, you, you actually just kind of personally gave me a lot to think about uh, over the next couple of months as I kind of rewrite my, my syllabi also. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really enjoyed this. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, it's been nice to kind of go back through memory lane. <laughs> yeah, good, good, good. This episode was recorded on July 5th, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. Thank you.